If I clean this up pretty good, it's still a little scratchy. Just sounds authentic. Mm -hmm. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, one-third of the most significant podcasting talent of 2022. Aww. That's like a secret compliment to us, Peter. Aww. Not very secret, I guess, but... Well, I don't... I can't just sit here awing all day, guys. I'm pretty busy. I'm uh, kind of a woman's man. I don't have time to talk today. (laughs) (laughs) And who are you? Oh, I'm co-host Jeremy. Ah, that's who you are. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And many years ago, I was a simple man. A simple man. No worries me. That's not the case anymore. It's very complicated. I can't wait to see you perform in some like Shakespearean local theater, Peter. <laughs> you kind of uh, recently made me exercise my acting chops with the uh, script you wrote for your your mix on the Patreon. Oh, true, true. <laughs> Jeremy, for those who aren't Patreon subscribers at the $10 and up tier, Jeremy made a script for his mix. There was a whole thing, and, and Sean and I had to act. That's true. I went all in. I had to one-up Sean, and I don't know if I succeeded, but I tried hard. You did try very hard. You got an A for effort, at least. I at least got an A for effort. And we have a special guest host, basically a co-host at this point. (laughs) For real. Who's here? Hi, I'm Taylor Rowley, and I am a card-carrying member of Barry's Babes. (laughs) <laughs> nice. Is, Please tell me this is true. <laughs> okay, I don't actually have a card, but I do have a a vintage homemade Barry Give fan club T-shirt that says Barry's Babes on it. Double nice. Yeah. <laughs> and do you wear that on like a daily basis no. for good luck? Or oh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> are Are you wearing it right now? I'm not. Because you were just bowling, so you didn't yeah, want to wear exactly. that out bowling. But yeah, it's really good. It's just uh, it's an illustration of just his eyes. And then it says Barry's Babes underneath. Nice. Yeah, it's good. Should look into licensing that officially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Taylor, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to have you on yet again. What record? I mean, you know, I think we people know by now, but please tell us what record <laughs> you have we joined us to talk di- about. We're going to be discussing the album Bee Gees First, which is actually their third album. I know. And it was released in 1967. Well, it is their first internationally released record. Yeah. Their first two were only released in Australia. Yep. This one came out on Polydor in the UK and the Atco label in the US in the summer of 1967. And where do we want to start? I think we are going to start with their first single, which was their first major, major hit, which is called New York Mining Disaster 1941. 
All right. Is it really their first one or was it their third one? <laughs> Actually, it was their third one. It's their third single. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it was, <laughs> the first but it single was, from this album. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, it's their first single from this record, but it is their third single period. So, yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah. yeah. I was just trying to make a joke. I didn't even know. <laughs> no, you, you, you saved me a, an installment of For the Record <laughs> oh, <laughs> down the road. All right. Well, let's get into New York Mining Disaster 1941, Side B, Track 1. In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that I knew Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? I keep straining my ears to hear a sound Maybe someone is digging underground Or have they given up and all gone home to bed Thinking those who once existed must be dead Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like? In the event of something happening to me There is something I would like you all to see It's just a photograph of someone that's in you Have you seen my wife, Mr. Jones? Do you know what it's like on the outside? I feel like the fact that the Bee Gees had hit songs before becoming a disco band is like one of the best kept secrets in record collecting in some ways. I wonder how many of our listeners were shocked just now to hear a very Beatles-esque sound come out of their speakers when they were expecting something a little different. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how few people know about the pre-falsetto disco Bee Gees, even though they know some of the songs and just don't know they're the Bee Gees. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, they had a whole career arc before, years before they became famous again. It wasn't even that they were struck. You know, a lot of these artists that you, you know, I feel like I come on here and we talk about, it's like they had an album and it didn't do very well. And then they like, you know, a few years later, they they released another one and then they did well, but this, they had like, it was, they came out, they were really successful. They, and then they broke up and then five years later they got back together and did it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really incredible. I know a number of people I know who watched the documentary that came out about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. How can you mend a broken heart? That's what it's called, right? Yes. 
they said that that was like a whole discovery to them, learning about this era of the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been aware of of this era for over a decade, maybe more than that at this point. Our friend of the show, who we've mentioned a few times, Dan Gast, introduced me to this album as well as a couple of the other early ones. Uh, Horizontal is the one following this, right, Taylor? Mm-hmm. With Massachusetts on it. Yeah. It's one of the big hits off that. And then what's the other one? Is it Idea? Yeah, Idea. That's my personal favorite. That's their third one after... Well, actually, it's the, their sixth. Yeah, it's so, <laughs> so, but yeah, so it's, confusing. It's, uh, if we're considering VG's first to be the first, the idea would be their third. Yeah. Well, Sean, you mentioned the Beatlesque quality of that recording right there. There were rumors that this was the Beatles recording under a pseudonym, and the, the label, Atco, seems to have fed right into that. They distributed promos with a blank label and the suggestion that it was an English group whose name started with B. And so many DJs, you know, thought, hey, this is a new low-key Beatles song. Played it heavily. I mean, that's probably the best promotion that you can get. <laughs> you can uh-huh. the best is to, for people to think that you're the Beatles in disguise. And yeah, it was, they, Echo was pushing this. They retitled it New York Mining Disaster 1941, with the subtitle, Have You Seen My Wife, Mr. Jones, which is repeated in the chorus, you know, so mm-hmm. that people could find it in the record store. So there was a lot of push behind this. And yeah, the Beatles' influence is pretty strong on this album, but I still think that already they're carving out their own identity. Definitely. I agree with that. Taylor, if you don't mind, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but what is the story that in that song? Like the actual... What's well, going on? Okay, so uh, apparently that song was inspired by a mining disaster in Wales, in Aberfan, mm-hmm. Wales in 1966. And they were inspired by that. And so they wrote this song based on it, but they just thought that New York sounded better than Aberfan, I guess. Yeah, more glamorous. <laughs> yeah, was their exactly. Wording. Yeah, that. That disaster was depicted in The Crown, the Netflix show. Oh, I haven't seen that. That's where I first learned of it. (laughs) They uh, wrote the song in a stairwell right before they recorded it. Apparently that this entire album was, they just would show up to the studio with no songs and it drove the producers crazy. And then they would just go to the stairwell and write these songs real fast and then come out and perform them. (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) I was reading that. That's really unorthodox that they basically came into the studio and that was their creative space that mm-hmm. they like they're inspired on the spot to write most of these songs it wasn't like they had been workshopping these out at gigs and whatnot yeah exactly i don't think i like that at all but we'll, we'll move on from that <laughs> why don't you like that i don't know does it like, make you feel like they're not taking it seriously yes <laughs> It does. Well, it's it's po- worth pointing out that the younger twin brothers, Morris and Robin, were 17 at the time of this recording, and Barry, older brother, was 19. Oh, wow. Amazing. Okay, they get a pass. <laughs> yeah. How many times have we done that on this show, where we start to judge a band and then find out they're kids and be like, actually, I take back all criticism. This right. now makes sense in context. But I mean, yeah. That like to me, the fact that they're seventeen and nineteen years old and writing a song about a mining disaster is very impressive. Yeah, for sure. That's not typically something that you would expect 
people, we can say kids that age, mm. to latch on to. Right. The themes are pretty mature on this record. Yeah. I would say they're even sort of like, I mean, they they tend towards the melancholy, which I appreciate very much about them. I feel like Holiday, even though that song is pretty cryptic, it's pretty sad. Oh, yeah. But we don't have to go into that one yet. I read this and then I'm never going to be able to hear the song any other way. But David Bowie was uh, very influenced by the song um, when he wrote Space Oddity. Oh, that I have always thought that it seemed like a Bowie song. And it, you know, pretty much, I, I guess it about parallels the beginning of his career. But specifically that style he hadn't even gotten to yet. That was a couple years later. Mm-hmm. So that's wild. The Bee Gees were influencing Bowie. Yeah. I know Barry Gibb, on his guitar on that, it was in an open D Hawaiian tuning, and then Robin was playing in a conventional tuning. They start on an A minor chord, and I guess it drove people nuts because they couldn't figure out exactly how they were voicing or playing those chords. So it's their little secret that they had some unique tunings going on. Yeah, I'm not sure what Hawaiian tuning is. That's how he described it, like an open... (laughs) Open D Hawaiian tuning. Basically, so if you were to play the strings open, it would play a D chord. Ah. Yeah, and they would use it in Hawaiian slide guitar stuff. Oh, that's cool. Because the slide, you know, is just a bar, so you got to have a whole chord just sitting there. Yeah. That was a hit, too. It reached number 14 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number 12 on the U.K. Singles. Did well in Australia, number 11. It was also a big hit in New Zealand. And the Netherlands reached number three on both of their charts. So right out the gate, you know, when they're going international here, the Bee Gees, they're hitting. Yeah. Yeah, this was their first big hit outside of Australia, which is why I guess we should get into some bio stuff, some background, if you'd like. Yeah, you, Sean or Jeremy, you guys don't have anything else you want to say before we get into that? No, I don't think we need to talk about our experience with the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> Valid. Okay, so all you know, uh, Barry Morris, not Maurice, and uh, Robin Gibb were born in the, on the Isle of Man in the late '40s, and then moved to Manchester, uh, England, where their father was from. Uh, they formed a band there called the Rattlesnakes in 1955. So they were like. I mean, these kids started really young. They were like like, under 10, (laughs) formed a band. Their first gig was at a local cinema, which had children playing in bands every weekend. Um, I guess the little talent shows or something like that. And uh, their plan was that they were going to lip sync to a record, which apparently broke on the way there. So that they had to sing live instead. But then they had such everybody really loved their singing that they decided to pursue it professionally. And so a few years later, they all decided to move to the whole family, the whole Gibb family moved to Australia and they immediately started performing there. They were discovered by a radio DJ named Bill Gates. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No relation. uh, (laughs) No relation. Who started booking shows for them. And um, actually BG's stands for his and Barry Gibbs initials. I was just going to ask. Not Brothers if Gibb. That, yeah, if that, I was going to ask if that tied in with the, the BG thing. Mm-hmm. So then for the next few years, they, you know, sang, you know, performed and recorded in Australia. They had a 
couple of song or a couple um minor hits one was called wine and women and the other was well the other one was their major hit was called spicks and specs <laughs> wine and women <laughs> something i'm sure they were very well versed in at that age right at 15 and <laughs> 17 so yeah their their second hit in um australia was actually a major hit was called spicks and specs but they just weren't having any success outside of australia which was frustrating to them so they decided to move back to England and in 1966, I think. And then their father wrote Brian Epstein and sent demos to him who passed them on to Robert Stigwood, who ended up uh, signing them to Polydor. Ba- yep, major, major player in the Bee Gees career and really in the music industry. <laughs> yeah. So then they recorded this record and then it was kind of, it just went from there. They had a ton of singles on this record. Two, I think yeah. we're going to talk about two others, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were going to talk about probably, I would say, the best known song, most covered song from this record would be To Love Somebody was the next song we were going to talk about. Do we want to play that and come back? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So this is Side B, Track 3 to love somebody. There's a light A certain kind of light That never shone on me I want my life to be Live with you There's a way Everybody said To do each and every little thing But what does it bring If I ain't got you Ain't got Baby You don't know what it's like Baby you don't know what it's like To love somebody to love somebody the way I love you. In my parade, I see your face again. singer Barry and Robin wrote that for? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Taylor, I, I expected you to. Sean or Jeremy, any idea? Nope. No, I didn't even realize this was written by them before I heard it. When I <laughs> was listening to this record again, I was like, oh, yeah, I know this song. And then I was looking, I was like, oh, they actually wrote this one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's an original Bee Gees song, but they wrote it for someone else originally. Tell them who, Taylor. It was originally written for Otis Redding. Oh, man. That, yeah. that makes so much sense. Yep. Otis was a fan and wanted a song, and unfortunately, he, he died in a, pl- in a plane crash before he was able to record the song. Yeah, he would have slayed that song. Totally. Yeah. Dang. Ugh, I that, agree. I just think that's one of the best songs ever. I love everything about it. Yeah, it's an all-timer. And Barry said that it was actually inspired by manager Robert Stigwood and everything he was able to do for the band. That was actually his inspiration for writing that song, which I just found that quote in, in doing some research. Were you Had you heard that at all, Taylor? I hadn't heard it, but I also read that quote today. Okay. Yeah, that, so that was interesting, kind of a, a just different angle but I wish, it's a universal yeah sounding song i do wish that i hadn't read that though it's like when i found you know you finally find out who you're so vain is about you know it's like man i didn't it's not i don't need to know all that it's not gonna i'm not gonna think about this song the same way <laughs> so. you want to do you want to ruin it for everyone else right now who uh, who is it about you're so vain. Oh, God. Now I think I've forgotten. Now I'm conflating it because um, Free Man in Paris is written about David Geffen. Um, but I feel like You're oh, so vain yeah. also <laughs> might be about David Geffen, but I'm not sure. So um, anyway. We'll, uh, we'll just plant those seeds for people to go <laughs> find out themselves. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that song's so good. It's amazing that he, I mean, again, they were like teenagers writing this pretty heavy duty love song. And then just belting it out like the manly lion he is. I love Barry Gibb. He's <laughs> <laughs> so great. <laughs> that song's been covered a lot. I, there's many covers of it that are so good. Like Nina Simone's is great. She's covered a yes. lot of PG songs, by the way. I I noticed that, that she will talk another one that we're going to talk about later. She covered as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that went to number seventeen on the Billboard US Hot 100 in. It, it only reached number 41 in the UK. I think it, one, of, one of them, maybe it was Barry, maybe it was Robin, said, you know, it's a, a soul song mm-hmm. and it had more American appeal. But when Nina Simone covered it a few years later, 1969, it reached number five in the UK. So it was a bigger hit with Nina Simone behind it. You, you know who else did it in the, much later on? Who? Michael Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> I I saw that. I was like, I don't ever want to hear that version. Never. <laughs> I actually first came by that song, at least to my recollection. It's one of those songs that's in the air. But the first time I really took note of it was a Flying Burrito Brothers version of it. Oh, yeah. That one's great. Yeah. Yeah. So then that I was really heavy into Graham Parsons around the time that this record came onto my radar. And I was like, ah, oh, wow. I, I kind of had the same reaction as Jeremy. Like, oh, they wrote this song yeah <laughs> so i mean they're just incredible songwriters yeah they wrote every single song on this record yeah yeah you don't have otis redding and nina simone itching to record your songs if you're not mm-hmm. great above and beyond songwriters right well how about we talk more about their story okay 
So where do we leave off? So that yeah, so this song became or this album became a big hit. They had signed a five record deal with Polydor. So they were between 1967 and 1970, they released five albums. Um, <laughs> cranking them out. Yeah, they cranked them out. So their their second one, let's see. There was Horizontal, and then there's Idea, then there's Odessa, Cucumber Castle. Horizontal Idea, Odessa, and Cucumber Castle after this in April 1970. And then they broke up. They just, I think Morris and Robin started pursuing their own careers. There was some beef between Barry and Robin because I think that Barry was getting a significant amount, significantly more attention than the other two brothers, even though they were all, you know, in pretty equal team. So they were apart for a year in 1970. And then they actually got back together only after a year. But then their career never really got to back to where it was, even though it was only a year later until their disco era. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, a rock band, they were derailed. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and it wasn't until the disco period that they were revitalized, probably beyond anything that anyone would have imagined. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not like there's even a lot of comparisons either, you know, in people in this 1967 psych pop kind of field, like how many of their contemporary bands went on to a successful disco career? Not like, many. Yeah, the exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Who and the Stones had like one disco song. Yeah, everybody just had a yeah. disco. Everybody had a disco song. Yeah, but you know, no one like, became disco superstars. No. That no. were like getting on the radio with these kind of light psych pop songs right this is kind of cool i didn't know this is that the you know the cover of the album is like super psychedelic it's actually almost too too psychedelic for me but (laughs) i (laughs) but they had the the guy who designed it designed revolver yeah klaus vorman yeah i didn't know that yep he he had a long history with the Beatles, a long Mm -hmm. association with them from their Hamburg days. And he, I think he ended up playing bass on like a lot of their solo records after the Beatles broke up. He, at the the time, at this time, Klaus Vorman was the bassist for Manfred Mann. Oh. And he, later he was on Lou Reed's Transformer. He's been on a ton of stuff. Oh, that's cool. So he, yeah. So he, he does album cover designs and bass playing all over the place. So I, I was excited to see his name pop up too. I was like, oh yeah. And that probably tied into, obviously when people saw the cover, they could see that the Bee Gees weren't the Beatles, mm-hmm. but still it kind of ties in with the I mean, they were just really trying, really trying to plant that seed in there. Yeah. In many ways. It worked better for the Bee Gees than for Klaatu. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I, Klaatu were a band in the 70s who were rumored to be the Beatles recording post breakup in disguise. Their best known song is Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft, covered by the Carpenters. And is that the one that people thought made people think that they were the Beatles, that song? I think it was some of the other songs okay. on that album. I think there's one called Sub Rosa Parkway. All right. It has some pretty. Beatle overtones. Yeah, because Calling Occupants. That doesn't sound anything like them. Yeah. 
I first came across that song on the Langley School's oh. music project. Yeah, their cover of that's so good. Yeah, the, the kids singing. Jeremy would love that album. Oh, I wonder how many bands, record labels, tried to like pin off as like, this is a secret Beatles project. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems like it was a good way to sell records and create a mystique and, you yeah. know, it's it's uh, an interesting it's an interesting legacy to to have. I think the Bee Gees were able to uh, escape it. Yeah, I think deception was a much bigger part of the music industry pre-internet as well. You know, I, I've heard about that in multiple genres. Like we're gonna make the album art intentionally kind of look like something else. So if people aren't thinking and they just see this record <laughs> and it's not very expensive, they're gonna buy it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we talked about that with the uh, the her, the Tijuana brass imitation record we did for our most recent Christmas episode, where it was mm-hmm. clearly supposed to look like a Herb Alpert record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's also been so many things like you know trying to record a local version of a national hit before it hits your market, and like all kinds of weird things like that. When information didn't travel as fast, there was a lot of ways you could really kind of pull one over on people back in the day. Yeah, that's the term cover comes from like regional artists trying to record big hit songs before they got into their local market. And so they were trying to cover up the like the success or hide hide it essentially. Yeah, I know sometimes you would have a uh, regionally a cover of a more popular song with like hit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So a question from Jeremy, someone who is largely ignorant about the Bee Gees, despite them always being there. Do any of them play instruments on this album? And if not, who's playing the instruments? Um, oh, boy. Yeah, Morris is playing multiple instruments, Instruments, right, Peter? Yeah, yeah, he is on bass guitar, rhythm guitar, piano, Mellotron, Hammond organ, and harpsichord. He's credited on. <laughs> and he he does the least lead singing of the three brothers. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of the harmonies and backing vocals. Um, I'm not even sure if he's actually featured on lead on any of the songs on this, but he does get some here and there, right, Taylor? Yeah. Yeah, here and there. I don't think he uh, ever does know, it on his own. It's mainly Robin and Barry who are doing the lead singing and they trade off kind of leading things. Robin does a lot of the lead vocals on the earlier stuff. It's Barry who has the falsetto that dominates the disco Mm -hmm. era stuff. Correct, Taylor? Yeah. Yes. He was at this point in his life, in his career, he was completely unaware that he had that ability. (laughs) I I, I believe it was when they were recording nights on Broadway that the producer like thought it needed something else and told him to start pushing his vocals and suddenly he enters this soaring falsetto <laughs> and then it was just kind of no turning back from that right. and that was years down the road from this point but Barry is yeah a lot of the leads vocally and he's the rhythm guitar and of course we mentioned he is, he often played in that open detuning to my understanding uh, Robin also a lot of lead vocals uh, but Hammond organ and pump organ are what he's credited on for this album. 
And so there's a lot of variety of keys going on. Now there are other non-Gib brother Bee Gees on this album. They who were official members of the band. The drummer is Colin Peterson, who had been a child actor, and he had a, a he had attended uh, school with the Bee Gees. Taylor, do you know what the name of their school was? No. Uh, Humpy Bong. That's the name of their school. Yeah, it was Humpy Bong State School. There, there was wow. later. Colin <laughs> was in a band called Humpy Bong. <laughs> And he had picked up drums in school, and he played on a lot of the early Australian recordings of the Bee Gees, and he later moved to England, just coincidentally around the time that the Bee Gees moved back there, and so he was recruited as their permanent drummer. He was the first non-Gib official member, and he ended up leaving in the late 60s. He questioned Stigwood's monopoly that he had over he, Stigwood was controlling every mm-hmm. aspect of things. And so I, I think he might have officially been fired. I wasn't exactly clear on that, but he left. And uh, the lead guitarist on this is Vince Maloney. He was born in Sydney, Australia. He had been a founding member of a group called Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, uh, who had some success. He relocated to London in late 1966 and was asked to join the Bee Gees right before the recording of this album. And he also seems to have exited the band in the late 1960s. And he went on to become a part of a short-lived Australian supergroup called Fanny Adams. Hmm. And that's about as much as I had on the other players. I, I don't think I was really fully aware that they had non-Gib members at this point. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't know that until we I started looking into this record more deeply today yesterday yeah and i was like i guess there are five people on the cover so that makes sense (laughs) i noticed one of their producers is aussie burn is there anything about him that you know yeah he was an australian producer who had helped them hone their sound in the mid-1960s and you know he seemed to believe in getting them off the ground enough to accompany them to england so he produced this record and then he didn't work with them after this album. They, I, I think they kind of, I could be wrong, but I think they were more independent in being able to, to produce their records after this point. Like they were confident and competent enough to kind of go out on their own to a degree. I, I'm sure, I'm sure Stigwood was still putting his name on things and, mm-hmm. you know, as a, any good overbearing label head <laughs> slash manager will do. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, that's about it. There, it's not like, of course, there's there's stri- the there's the string arrangements that are, are worth discussing. Most of them were done by a guy named Bill Shepard, who was a British orchestra leader, and he went on to act for the next six years as the Bee Gees arranger and conductor in the studio and on tour. So he was pretty instrumental, no pun intended. <laughs> In their in their career, uh, some of the arrangements were done by a guy named Phil Dennis. I know the ones on New York Mining Disaster, nineteen forty one, were by him. Those sessions might have predated the rest of the album because the the New York Mining Disaster came out a few months in advance of everything else. Okay, but yeah, that's about it. That's about it. There's really not. It's not like a ton of session players, other than I'm sure you know. There's obviously the people playing all the strings and whatnot, but I couldn't find any information on those people so 
I am seeing that Phil Dennis a few years later did the arranging on Rodriguez coming from reality. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I didn't really interesting look, tie in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't really look into him too much, but that's that's a cool cool detail. Well, I think we should go ahead and play the song that really pulled me in personally to this album and that would be Holiday Side A Track 2. Such a holiday Ooh, you're a holiday Such a holiday It's something I think's worthwhile If the puppet makes you smile If not, then you're throwing stones Throwing stones Throwing stones a funny game Don't believe that it's all the same Can't think what I just said Put the soft pillow on my head Millions of eyes can't see Yet why am I so blind When the sun It's unkind, it's unkind. Very strong zombies feel yeah. on that one to me. And then, like, sometimes feels kind of kinks-like. I feel, I that song reminds me a lot of A Wider Shade of Pale. Like, very, like, the lyrics are mm-hmm. very cryptic. It's very pretty, very melancholy, very orchestral. Can't really put your finger on what he's talking about, but you know it's something heavy to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so those two songs remind me of each other. But I agree, the zombies, totally. Good call. There's so many points on this record that I feel like remind me of some of the similar bands around this time point. But like they're taking these little bits and pieces from all these different things that are happening without making it sound like they're just, you know, doing a retread mm-hmm. or doing something that's not their own. Like they, they take little bits and pieces, but they still make it completely their own on this record. Yeah, being teenagers who when you're that age, your brain is like a sponge just absorbing everything but the fact that they have as much talent as they do at this point they can then productively and creatively expel that what they've soaked in and Mm -hmm. right yeah it's within i'm sure with enthusiasm and maybe even a little bit of reckless abandon if they're just going in the studio and writing this stuff on the spot yeah and they also you know they have what other bands don't have which is again their blood harmony um they've you know like very close three-part harmony that they do no one else has had that so even though their songs may have sounded familiar those harmonies gave them the extra touch i think 
Yeah, it's true. That's something that's very distinct from like the three-part harmonies that the Beatles do. They, mm-hmm. the, John, Paul, and George's voices are all very different. So the, when the Bee Gees do it, it sounds like three different notes being played on the same instrument. Whereas like the Beatles, it sounds like three different instruments coming together. I like that, Peter. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> you should do a podcast about music. <laughs> I, I might look into it. Man, I just realized that this is like, is this like the third or fourth group I've come on to talk about that are siblings? <laughs> yeah, I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah, because we did the Carpenters and, you- and the Roaches and now the Bee Gees. Yeah, I'm guessing you're a Beach Boys fan too. You know what? Not really. Oh, wow. I mean, controversial. <laughs> I like. I just. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what about what about feel flows? Well, Surf's Up is the best, and that's one of my favorite albums of all time. But I, I'll, I would take that and leave the rest, honestly. Fair. Yeah. No. no fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's what people say. People say fair when they don't want to argue. When they more, don't. Right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're entitled to your take. <laughs> Well, Sean, I'm going to turn our attention to you and ask if you have any recommended similar albums to this. Yeah, I got a few. First up, another 1967 record, Chad Stewart and Jeremy Clyde Mm. of Cabbages and Kings. That's a great one. Yeah, later known as Chad and Jeremy. I was just about to ask if that was the same. (laughs) Of course it's the same. Yeah, yep. You know, they had a little bit more of a folky sound later on, but some of their early records have a psychedelic bent and are pretty good comparisons to this one. And also, like this Bee Gees record, not always in the dollar bin, oftentimes more like 10 or more, but still like, you know, pretty easy to find and people might mistakenly bury a valuable Bee Gees or Chad and Jeremy record occasionally. Cool. I didn't know that the that Chad and Jeremy went psych, were psych and then went folk. I thought it would be the other way around, just based on trends. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not the biggest Chad and Jeremy <laughs> expert, but the authority. <laughs> we'll save Maybe that I'm completely for wrong, us. and everyone's yelling at me right, right now. But. <laughs> Next recommendation: You mentioned the whiter shade of pale sounding like this, and I was kind of thinking about some of the other groups around this time that were the seeds of prog rock and how similar it kind of sounds. And one other group I was thinking of is, of course, the Moody Blues. Mm-hmm. I-, I was hoping you would include them. Who started as, yeah, you know, started as more of a pop band before mixing in classical and kind of inadvertently birthing progressive rock. But their album, On the Threshold of a Dream from 1969, I think has a lot of similarities <laughs> to what we're talking about today. I was if you hadn't recommended that one I was going to do that one so nice well Gold here's, star, Sean. <laughs> here's another one you might have in the here's another one you might have in the can for recommendations the monkeys Pisces Aquarius Capricorn and Jones Limited also from 1967 which <laughs> yep, I believe will a- be <laughs> featuring on the podcast in just a few short weeks oh cool very soon very soon I love the monkeys yep I can't wait to talk about them it's gonna be great uh taylor you got any recommendations for people no 
Okay. <laughs> uh, I check just out, threw you on the spot. Well, there. check out. I would just say you should. They, people should listen to their other early records. I yeah. yeah. Horizontal's great. Yeah, an idea. And, oh man, I listen to that record on repeat often. I love that album. Odessa, that's their double album. Have you ever seen that one, you guys? It's like covered in velvet. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know that I've actually seen a physical copy. Yeah. So it's it's it looks, velvet. It's okay. <laughs> and then Cucumber Castle, I think, is their last one before they broke up temporarily. And that's a good one too. But yeah, I would suggest any of those four uh, four other records, and they're not very expensive. I wouldn't. I think I found idea for at least idea for very cheaply. Yeah, there's also a compilation that came out. I think just like a year after this record called "Rare, Precious, and Beautiful." There's like a butterfly on the cover, and I see that one in the dollar bins pretty frequently. It's a good one to pick up if you're into this this era of the Bee Gees. You know, before we decided to do this album and have taylor come on to talk about it i if you had asked me i would have said for sure that i've got to get a message to you was on this album but that's on idea right yeah yes yeah i was i was like going back and listening to this for the first time in a while and i was like wait there's a song missing yeah (laughs) i think i i think i like was given like three the first three albums all simultaneously so they kind of all just blended together in my mind and i started a joke as an idea as well yeah, that's that's a big one too. That's probably one of the earliest non-disco BG songs that I remember hearing and I was like, "Wait a minute. There's more going on here than I realized." Yeah, that song's really sad. <laughs> yeah, not much of a joke. Mm-hmm. Well, Taylor. Hi. Yeah. Tell the people again how to hear your excellent radio show Windmills of Your Mind. Uh, yes, you can hear my radio show, uh, The Windmills of Your Mind. It's like every fourth Thursday on um, NTS Radio, which you can listen to on their website or their app. And then once it's archived, you can hear it on my website, which is windmillsofyourmind.org. Um, the easiest way to remember all this is just if you follow me on Instagram. Um, and my show pages Insta- or show's Instagram is The Windmills of Your Mind. Yeah. Cool. What else have you been working on? I let's see. I'm working on a documentary. A music. I'm a music supervising a documentary about a UFO cult called Unarius, which were their heyday was in the 70s and 80s, and they made all of these sort of public access movies uh, in the 80s that people. That's how people uh, found out about them. But they. It's very. It's a very interesting story. It's pretty fun. It's not not as it's not super tragic like most cult stories are. And then what else? So that's does the aforementioned calling occupants of interplanetary <laughs> craft have any uh, relevance to that project? Yes, and that's as, that's the most I will say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh man, I love cult stories. Yeah, this one's a good one. It's. So I don't know if you saw the Source Family documentary about ten yeah. years ago. Well, Jody Willie, who's uh, directed that, is also making this film. Nice, yeah, nice. awesome, fitting. Yeah, let's see. So there's that, and then I um, I work with Tiffany Anders, who's uh, another music supervisor. Um, I am her assistant on a lot of projects, and right now we are working on the second season of Reservation Dogs season. T- uh, yeah, season two of Reservation Dogs. Yes. Uh. I love yeah. that first season. Yeah, it'll be out this summer. Yeah. And I, I think uh, Sean 
has made very good progress on another TV show that you did some work on, Pen15. Is that right, Sean? Yeah. I think I said I was going to finish it before we brought Taylor back on. I've got two episodes left, so I at least... How much progress? Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I, I think keep, there were like eight episodes of the I know <laughs> well the show is so good but it's also just like it's so triggering yeah sometimes. it is sometimes I like turn an episode like ah I just want to relax and watch TV I'm like well now I'm crying so yeah. <laughs> and it's, laughing there's just like too much going on so yeah it's, it's, I can't it's, binge it like I can other shows yeah that's <laughs> yeah fair. there's a, a lot to process <laughs> with each yeah. episode also, these I, days, I just got to be more selective about what kind of a mood art is going to put me in sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I did watch, I watched the episode that Taylor, you music supervised on, because there's one episode uh, yeah. about Yuki. Yeah, right? I co-supervised an episode about uh, Maya Erskine's mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Got the, the Dionne Warwick jukebox scene. That was cool. Yeah. And... A bunch of pretty obscure Japanese pop songs from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which I am doing again for another project, but I'll talk to you guys about that next time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. It won't be long. You'll be back sooner or yeah. later. Yeah. We, we've had a few guests lately that have come on for like the third time. They're like, wow, am I the record setter? Has anyone else been on as much as me? It's like, uh... You no, got a lot of catching up to do if you're gonna yeah. <laughs> get yeah. on Taylor's yeah. level. Yeah, stay in your place. Truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is. Uh, I've long wanted to cover one of these early Bee Gees records, and there was never any doubt in my mind that you would. I knew that you would be the one to, to come on as our, our guest because. You've made it clear that this is your all-time favorite group. Have we made that clear? I don't know if we have on the actual episode. This this is probably number one, right? I think so. I do. I think I think they are my favorite band. Yeah, you have a handmade Barry's Babes shirt. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Now, worth asking to you know put you on the spot for maybe like the third or fourth time this recording. How do you feel about the disco era stuff? Oh, I love it. I think it's so good. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, it's it's like having two favorite bands in one. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's great. Did you know um do you guys remember that show in the 90s um on VH1 called Storytellers? I remember it by name. I can't remember what it was. It was like band it was kind of like their answer to Unplugged. Yeah, they would be up on stage kind of in an intimate setting. Yeah, it was very intimate, yeah. like small audience. And it's like a lot of it was acoustic. Not, I mean, it wasn't like strictly acoustic or anything. But um, the Bee Gees episode of that, if you can find it, is so good. And they play, it's all like acapella and like there's some guitar in it. But yeah, he does, uh, Barry Gibb plays jive talking on acoustic guitar. It's really Nice. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately... For those that don't know, Morris and Robin are no longer with us. Older brother Barry is the only BG. I know. It's so sad. And I teared up at the end of the documentary because he was like, I, I would give it all up just to have my brothers back again. I, I know. That was heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that really struck me too. That was That's a great documentary. It's really good. checking out. Yeah, for a music documentary, which can be often very annoying, I think. That's uh, yeah. it was really good. <laughs> yeah, I that part 
was very moving and the part about the staying alive drum beat being a drum loop from uh is it night fever that they looped the drums uh-huh. from because the dr- their drummer had left them and they needed to keep recording so they just did this whole elaborate you know pre pro tools and all that they had to like make a tape loop <laughs> and was that correct me if i'm wrong it was that the first time it ever it had ever been done or I can't definitively say, but no, it, tape loops would have been happening by then. Well, they ma- they made it seem in the documentary that it was like something very novel, so I didn't, I wasn't sure. Maybe it was like the first loop drum beat. Okay. Um, tape loops were usually more of like an effects background noise kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, John Lennon used tape loops to make Revolution Nine, but I, yeah, maybe the, specifically the way they did it, it seemed pretty innovative the way it was presented. I agree, but our, you know, hey, listeners, if you want to fill us in on. The history of tape loops. <laughs> e- email us at i'dbythatpodcast.com. Oh, man. You guys are dealing with those emails. I'm not reading that. Do you guys get a lot of emails? <laughs> you know, not a lot, but we did. Mostly uh, get messages from elsewhere and social media and stuff. Yeah. Nobody uses the email anymore. But yeah, We did happen to drop our email in our New York Rock and Roll Ensemble episode, and one of the members emailed us <laughs> with some information. <laughs> So I've been trying to remember to uh, drop it here and there, just in case it helps anyone get a hold of us. But yeah, you can. Remember, we sh- we should say yeah, we're on Instagram. I'd buy that pot. Po- You'd buy that podcast for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy that podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can find us there. We always post about stuff as it's coming up. So yeah, and there's a little group if you're newer to the show. It's like an I'd buy that podcast group where people post, you know, their dollar finds and what they're digging. And it's like a nice little community over there. Yeah. Where's our, that on group? Facebook. I'm not, we, I'm not I in will, Facebook. I'm not, I'll I'm send, not in that. <laughs> I'll send you an invite, Taylor. Okay. Steve Plastic Crime Wave Krakow is in there. So you'll have other friends there. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, what are we going out on? Um, we're going to hear uh, a song called Please Read Me. And this is one. Yeah, this is another one recorded by Nina Simone. Yes, I love her cover of this one. But we co- we the two of the songs that we play, uh, played today were written by both Barry and Robin. And then To Love Somebody was written just by Barry. The, this is uh, the only one we're going to hear today that was written by all three of them. I thought that was a good note to to leave on. Yeah, it seems like they're the writing credits vary like between releases like on the single it might be credited to both of them but then mm-hmm. on the album it's just to one of them. It seems like it's kind of a mess and it does seem like there was as you talked about kind of with royalties and this and that. I'm sure especially with siblings, it, it, you know, a little bit of friction. But yeah, it's good to note that they did all three of them did write. And here's a good example of that. Please read me. And, you know, please listen to this podcast <laughs> whenever you can. <laughs> uh, I'd buy that for a dollar. We got lots of episodes. But thanks for listening to this one. My name is Peter Cook. My name's Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Taylor Rowley. Thanks for coming again, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Simple.
I never tried 